Well, good morning. It's good to see you here this morning as we worship our God together. On the back of your bulletins are the announcements. We'll be having lunch, and then following lunch, we'll have an afternoon service around 1.45. Prayer meeting, 7 o'clock on Zoom. See the other announcements there. There is announcements for you ladies and for you gentlemen. And I would say for you gentlemen because maybe you'd be instrumental in seeing your la- your wives or spouses get to this ladies' conference. It's the annual ladies' conference there at Grace Baptist. The online registration is now opened at their website, www.sermon.org. You can register for this conference, and all the details about the conference is there. So I would encourage you, if you're able, to go and be a part of that as well. Let me give you a couple updates. First of all, Tommy Sue went through surgery, and she's doing well. She's home recovering. Thank you for those who have helped or will help in providing meals for them here in these recent days. So uh, continue to pray for her and her recovery. Uh, Barb Friesen was put in hospice home this past week. So pray for her and for the family. Uh, There's also an opportunity to minister to Barb's family. If you're interested in helping out with that, the details of that, you can talk to either Lisa Perry or to Tricia, and they can tell you how you can help the family at this time as well. And then just to give you this announcement, and most of you, if, if you're familiar with local news, knows that the Associated Charities here in town had a fire this past week. And the things that, that they were, that they had for the children to help them to begin school were all burnt in the fire and destroyed. So as a church, we're going to be giving them a gift to help them restore some of those things. And I just wanted you to be aware of that as well. So those are some of the updates I wanted to share with you this morning. But now let us give ourselves to the worship of our God in Revelation chapter 19. We read concerning Jesus Christ on his robe and in his thigh. He has written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We are gathered here to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Will you prepare your hearts to meet with that majestic one this morning?
Uh, inside your bulletin is the call to worship. Coming from the 99th Psalm. Now I don't know. Where, oh, here it is. I couldn't find my own bulletin. So let us call one another to worship with this responsive reading. Will you stand with me as we do so? And in this passage, we're reminded that with all the uncertainty of life, we have the certainty of Jesus Christ reigning and ruling over all things. The Lord reigns. Let peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubims. Let the earth shake. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Now let us take our Trinity hymn books, the Trinity hymn book, and turn to hymn number 89, Come Thou Almighty King, number 89 in the Trinity hymn book.
Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for hymns such as that, which remind us that we are here before you, and you have come to meet with us, the most holy God in the three persons that we love, adore, and worship. Come and meet with us, strengthen us, give us the hearts of belief, take the dullness from us in this hour, and may we approach unto you with a liveliness that would listen to your word and be obedient to go and obey you throughout the week. Strengthen our pastor as he d- delivers the message. And um, come and forgive us of our sins and grant us to uh, love, worship, and adore you um, all our days. In your blessed name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Now again, in the Trinity hymn book, turn to 491. 491, Jesus calls us over the tumult of life's wild, restless sea, saying, Christian, follow me. 491. We are in Mark chapter 6 today for our daily reading. Mark chapter 6. Just a couple comments before we read through this passage. Uh, Mark, of all the gospel writers, 
doesn't dwell too much on issues as they come along. He's very fast-paced, and we see that in this chapter also. He goes from one situation to another incident, and it's just you got to really uh, strap on your shoes to run along with him to follow along. There are a couple things he does mention, though, and one is the unbelief is uh, rebuked of the Lord's uh, townspeople, those whom he grew up with. And here they had the light of the world in their presence, and they, they just did not see um, who he was and what he was about. And then another thing that is brought up is hardness of heart. Uh, towards the disciples, it might have been more of a dullness of heart, but in the Herodias, the wife of uh, Philip and Herod, we see that it's here was a woman of the world, and, and her hardness wasn't good enough for her that John had been put in a prison and was therefore out of her life. She demanded more. And we see that in our world today, very much so. So um, as we approach uh, the Lord Jesus and what we're told about him, have a believing heart and and. Do not harden yourself. These are the words of life. This is the one who can give you life everlasting, and there's no one else. All right, chapter 6. Jesus went from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And as he was going around the villages teaching, and he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt but to wear sandals, and he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. And any place that does not receive you or listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become very well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. 
For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Also, this passage teaches us not to make rash oaths um, if we're in a situation to do so. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and said and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head, and he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a scheduled place, excuse me, secluded place, and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in a boat to a secluded place by themselves. The people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities and got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, He saw a large crowd, and he felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it was already quite late, his disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate, and it is already quite late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and spend 200 denarii and bread and give them something to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. And he commanded them all to sit down by groups in the green grass, and they sat down in groups of hundreds and of fifties. And he took 
the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food and broke the loaves. And he kept giving them to the disciples to set before them. And he divided up the two fish among them all. And all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up twelve full baskets of the broken pieces and also of the fish. There were five thousand men who ate the loaves. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side of Beth- to Bethsaida. And while he himself was sending the crowd away, after bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke with them and said to them, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him and ran about the whole country and began to carry here and there on their pallets those who were sick to the place they heard he was. Wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that he might just touch the fringe of his cloak And as many as touched it were being cured. As once again we seek our God together in prayer, we especially want to remember Pastor Bala and the Sovereign Grace Church there in Auckland, New Zealand, especially as recently we have heard of many opportunities that he has had to minister to Tamil-speaking people from India and Sri Lanka, primarily by way of Zoom, but uh, what an opportunity Pastor Bala has had. But we pray that God will give him strength as he labors for the outreach of many and yet still pastors the church there in Auckland as well. So let us seek our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as your word has been read to us this morning, we are reminded of what a great Savior we have. We thank you that he can do all things. He can feed 5,000 with very little. He can walk on water. He can heal the sick. And yet, Father, the most amazing thing about our Savior is He was willing to take our sins upon Himself. He is the One who became sin for us, that that One who knew no sin. And how thankful we are for His work, His labor, as we're reminded of what it cost Him. That man who 
was perfectly holy in every way, never defiled by sin, and yet He became sin. He tasted death for us. But again, we're reminded of what a great Savior we have because that last great enemy, death, could not conquer Him. That He arose from the dead. And because He lives, we shall live also. And because of His work, many of us in this place this morning know what it is to have our sins forgiven. We know what it is to be found right with You through Your Son, Jesus Christ. So this morning we bless You for that wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for many answers to prayer. We thank You for the way that You watched over Tommy Sue and her surgery. And pray that now as she recovers that it will be a speedy recovery without any complications. Father, we pray as well that You would be with Barb Friesen. How we thank You for her testimony, her evident love for You, her confidence in the Savior Jesus Christ that all that You do is good and You will be glorified. So take her present situation and whatever You deem best, may You be glorified through it. Father, we pray that You would be with our community and pray that as the people of God, we might shine as lights in this community that You might open up doors for us to do so in days to come. That people might know that the believers at Reformed Baptists love the Lord with all their heart and they love others as well. And that's demonstrated by their service and work towards others. So Father, may You open doors for us and use us, we pray, to have opportunity then to share the glorious Gospel that's found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have of interceding for Your Kingdom in other places. We thank You for Pastor Bala. We pray, Father, that You continue to bless his ministry both there in the church in Auckland as well as Tamil-speaking people around the world. We thank You for the good report even this past week of Your blessing upon His gathering with those men in Sri Lanka and pray that their time together would be beneficial not only for those men but also for the churches wherein they labor. We pray, Father, that You would be with Pastor Bala and may His plans come to pass of coming to the States even later in the year. Father, we would ask now that You would draw near to us as we come to open Your Word. May You open our hearts to receive it aright as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now before we come to open the Word of God, take your hymns of grace, turning to 125. Hymns of grace, 125. Come, Christians, join and sing. Hallelujah. Amen. Loud praises to our King. 125. 
Let's stand together as we sing. can be seated. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17. We are in that portion of Scripture that we began a couple weeks ago that started back in chapter 16 in which Moses is now opening up in greater detail the fifth commandment. Children, what is the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment is honor your father and your mother. And we were reminded a couple weeks ago that the larger catechism tells us in question 124, who are met by father and mother in the fifth commandment? The answer, by father and mother in the fifth commandment are met not only natural parents, but all superiors in age, gifts, and especially such as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. So what Moses is now expounding is that of 
authority over us besides our natural parents. And two weeks ago, we began looking at judges, that even though they were going to possess this new land, not everything was going to be right. There was going to be wrong that's taken place, and they would need judges to help bring justice upon certain situations. And you might recall that these judges are not to distort justice by partiality or by taking of bribes. So he has dealt with judges. And now in chapter 17 and verse 14, through the end of this chapter, he deals with the authority of kings. And he opens that up for us. He'll go on in chapter 18 to speak about prophets and priests as well. But this morning, our attention will fall upon chapter 17 and verse 14. Follow as I read. And when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. And he shall not multiply wives for himself, else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase in silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him that he shall read it all the days of his life, and that he will learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statues, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Back in Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abram, My covenant is with you. And you will be a father of a multitude of nations. He goes on to tell him, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nation, uh, nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. Kings will come forth from you. Abraham was not only the father of many nations, but kings would also come from him. There would be a line of 
kings from the household of Abraham. Now this kingdom would not be set up right away. I'm going to pause here for a minute. I think we're having a little trouble. All right, I think she has plenty to us looking after her now, so we'll continue on. This kingdom, this kingdom would not come about till later. So as we come to this passage in Deuteronomy, it is no surprise again that God would tell His people they're going to have a king. There's going to be a kingdom established in Israel. Now, now, oftentimes we think God never intended Israel to have a king. That such an idea comes because of what we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8. There in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel asked for a king but they were asking for a certain kind of king. They were not looking for the kind of king that God would appoint, but they were looking for a king like everyone else had. And therefore, when Samuel speaks to God, and we'll look at that in a few moments, but when Samuel speaks to God about that, God tells Samuel, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. They don't want the king that I want for them. And so oftentimes we read 1 Samuel chapter 8 and we walk away and say, Israel was never supposed to have a king. But that's not true. God would anoint a king for them once they landed in the promised land. And so as we come to this chapter, as we come to this portion of Scripture, God sets before His people the kind of king that He would appoint for them one day. And so there are several things that I would have you note about the king that God would appoint for them. Four things in particular. First of all, we find here in the passage the occasion of the king. When would God appoint this king? And we read here in verse 14, when, which directs our thoughts to the occasion in which the king would be anointed, it is when they become a kingdom and that will take place when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it 
and live in it. So when you enter the land and when you begin to get settled and when you occupy that land as you ought, then God will anoint for you a king. You see, up until this point, these people have been wanderers. Once they settle, they will seek a king. And this king will not be one that seeks conquest because they've already supposedly conquered the land. They've settled in it. But this would be a kingdom of peace. They weren't to look for a warrior king, someone who will lead them to battle. God used judges to do that. But once they have possessed the land and live in it, then a king will be set over them. Once they possess it, once it is theirs, a kingdom will be established. Now you know what happens. Sometime later, Joshua was leading them. And once Joshua is off the scene... We're told in Judges chapter 2 that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. They did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. They followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples. They gave themselves to the enemy. From, they gave themselves to the enemy. So, so, so for 500 years, they've sort of languished in the promised land. They did not seek to possess it. In fact, they did that which is evil, and they began to follow other gods. They never truly settled and took possession of the land. And so finally, we come to the days of Samuel, who has been instrumental to bringing the people back to Yahweh. But Israel was still cohabiting in the land with the Canaanites. And in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we read these words, Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. They ought to say, or God says, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. We no longer want him to rule over us. We want to have a king like everybody else has. They want to be like other nations. And they want a king to fight their battles. This was not the desire that God promises them in Deuteronomy. God says, once you're in the land, 
And once you seek to possess it and you're settled in that land, then I will anoint a king. They didn't like God's timeline. They wanted a king now. They were living in disobedience. So they were asking for a king like everyone else. The people wanted a warrior king to fight for them and bring about a conquest of the land. They wanted the king to finish the wars with the Canaanites. They wanted a king like everybody else had. Instead of being obedient to God and letting Him rule and lead them in battle, they found themselves growing weary and wanting to have a king established for them. That's the occasion in which a king was to be appointed, when they have settled and possessed the land. But secondly, notice with me, a description of the king. A description of the king. In verses 15 to 17, God, as it were, paints a portrait of what their king should be like. And it stands in contrast with the kings of other nations. As you read through these qualifications, we're struck with the reality of how God's anointed king would be in great contrast to the kings of other places. Notice there are four qualifications. First of all, he was to be a fellow countryman. He's to be a fellow... He was to be Jewish. And with this, I believe God is saying, I don't want the man I anoint to be one taken up by the surrounding world. He's not to be a foreigner. He was to be a Jew. He was to be one of God's people. God, God knew that the tendency of the people of Israel was to be taken up by what they saw other nations doing. Look at their king. He, he rides around majestically. Look at their king. He, he has big palaces and everything else. We want, we want him. We want him to be our king. And he's warning them, be careful not to be taken up with the world and, and following after them. Secondly, he was not to multiply horses for himself. He wasn't to multiply horses for himself. Well, that seems like a strange thing. What's the purpose of the horses? The purpose of the horse was that of warfare. If a man had a, a, a good chariot and, and a strong horse, there would be confidence in those things. And God is saying, I want someone who is confident in me, who trusts in me, not in their horses. We often say that the army with a horse is going to have greater confidence than the army who is, limited, who is limited to only go forward on the ground, the infantry. Right? The horse is mightier. 
And therefore, their confidence would be in the horse. And God is saying, no, your confidence must be in me. You must trust in God alone. Don't be taken up with the world. He's not to be a forwarder. Do not multiply horses. I want your confidence and trust to be in me. It's even interesting because he says here, um, verse 16, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. You see, the, the temptation was, you know, Egypt has the best horses. Let's go over there and get our horses from them. I, it's amazing to me that they would even want to return to Egypt. Why would they want to go back to the place where they were in bondage for all those years? And, and yet the warning is, because you have confidence in other things, you may be even willing to go to Egypt in order to get the horses. Psalm 20 and verse 7, most of us are familiar with. Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. Where is your boast? The one that God anoints king must be one who has his confidence in God. Thirdly, he is not to multiply wives. He's not to multiply wives. Again, look at the passage. Verse 17, He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase in silver and gold. So he is not to multiply houses. Why? I mean, wives, why? Because they would lead him away from God. They would be the ones that would draw his hearts away from God. And that's happened. Here's a man who takes on many wives, foreign wives, and the issue isn't that they're foreign. The issue is that they would drive his heart away from God. God says this will happen. Take heed to the warning. It's, it's, it's amazing to me how often when God tells us and gives us warnings, we think that's for the other guy, do we not? I, I would never fall prey to that. Even if I took up other wives, I would never let my heart be drawn away from God. That's for the weaker man. It's not for me. When did you become wiser than God? God says if you multiply in wives, your heart will turn away. Your heart will turn away. Let none of us think that we're above or we're exempt from temptation. Proverbs 6 and verse 27 says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes and not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? This is a warning here. Not to play with sin. If your soul's going to prosper, then you can't play with sin. 
And therefore, when it comes to the one that, that I anoint as king, he must have a heart that's right with me. He must have a heart that's drawing close to me. So this anointed king is the one who's not to be taken up with the world. He's to trust and have confidence in God alone. He's to keep his heart right with God and drawing near to Him. And then fourthly, he was not to increase in silver and gold. He's not to increase. That's an amazing qualification for a king, isn't it? I mean, when you think of a king... You think of someone who is quite wealthy. Someone who has accrued to himself a great deal of wealth. What a contrast from the kings of other nations. This king is not to increase in silver or gold. He is not to use his position in order to gain wealth for himself. I mean, think about it. Once we have wealth, we think we have no need of God. I've got everything I need. And the warning for a rich man, the Bible doesn't condemn anyone for being rich. The Bible condemns the reality that often when men become rich, they forget God. They don't recognize their dependence upon Him. They don't pray as they ought. Give me this day my daily bread. There's this assumption, I have my daily bread. But if you read that prayer, I do not believe there is an exemption. Give us this day our daily bread unless you have over $500,000, and then you've got it on your own. The king that I anoint will be a king who recognizes his dependence upon me and not upon his wealth. Psalm 52 and verse 7, Behold the man who makes God his refuge. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trust in the abundance of his riches. Look at the man who doesn't depend upon God, who doesn't recognize that everything he has, he only has because God has blessed Look at that man who trusts in the abundance of riches. Who has to have money. Look over, turn over with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I think it's good to be warned about such things. Especially in our day. When men seem to spend more time checking the stock market and checking their 401s and how much they've made or how much they've lost and so forth and so on. They spend more time doing that than they spend in the Word of God and communing with Him. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on 
the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Rich man, be warned not to be conceited, not to be prideful, but and to fix your hope upon those uncertain riches. You realize that it's just temporary. You realize how quickly you can go to having riches to being poor. Do you, do you recognize that reality? How, how things can quickly change. Look, look at our society. Look at some of the athletes. And you look at them and they get paid millions of dollars and yet some of them end up broke. And you're wondering, man, what does a man do with $500 million? How does he spend that much money? Look, look at people that have won the lottery and, and they get millions of dollars. They've done documentaries on people who've won millions of dollars and end up in poverty eating at soup kitchens. How quickly it can turn. Don't put your hope in riches. He goes on there in 1 Timothy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasures of, on a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Instruct them to do good and be rich in good works and generosity. It's, it's a wonderful blessing to see someone who has riches and they're using it for the kingdom of God. They're not hoarding it up. They're not buying useless things but they're using it for the good and service to God and His kingdom. Well, here then are the four qualifications of the one that God would anoint king. He's not to be taken up by the world. He's to have his confidence in God alone. He's to have a heart that's right and drawn towards God. And he's to live in dependence upon God that's a description of the king. The occasion for the king, when you've settled in the land. The description of the king, these four features. That leads us thirdly to notice the action of the king. The action of the king. Verses 18 and 19. Now it shall come about that when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write... For himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. Now I don't know if David and the others ever sat down and wrote down the law of God, but they had it in their presence. They were, they were to have the law of God nearby. Not only that, verse 19, it shall be with him. He shall read it all the days of his life. Wouldn't you love for a politician to read the Word of God every day of their lives? That this king that God anoints is to be a man who reads the Word of God. He's to take that which has been established as God's Word. He's to read it. 
that he may learn to fear God, that he would stand in awe of God, that there would be a fear of Almighty God in everything they did. Oh, to have men and women in higher office that would read the Word of God, recognize who God is, and seek to do that which is right in His sight. He's to fear God. He's to carefully observe all the words of the law and these statutes. He's to live by that law. He will not only know the law, but He will also do it. That's His action. And that leads me then fourthly to the conclusion of the king or the result that comes from this king. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left so that he and his sons may continue long in, in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. The conclusion is this man will walk humbly. When this man begins to think himself to be great, when this man begins to think himself to be so powerful, as he reads the Word of God, he will be humbled. He will recognize that there's one who is over him who is greater and more powerful than he is, and therefore he will treat his people as they should be treated. So here's the king. Here's the king that God will anoint for His kingdom one day for the people of Israel when they come into the land, when they possess the land, when they've settled in the land, when they've conquered the Canaanites and cast them out of the land, when the, when the kingdom is established, which never happens, as you know. But this was what God wanted them to do. And when that happens, I will anoint you a king. And he'll be a king whose heart will draw near to me. He will not be taken up by the world. He's a man who will be dependent upon me for all things. He's a man who will have a heart that draws near to me. This is the man I will anoint. He will be your king at my appointed time. And so who do they get? Well, first of all, they get Saul. Oh, Saul was a mighty warrior. He stood taller than any others in the land. His stature, I mean, most people came up to his shoulders. He was that much taller than everybody else. And, and, and he, would, he would be our king. He, he's the one who is the first king over Israel. And we read about what happens there in Hosea. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 11, God says, I gave you a king in my anger and I took him away in my wrath. He would not obey God. So who followed? Who followed Saul? David! Now, if I ask you, when I say David, what comes to your mind? Now, some of you children may think, well, Goliath. 
And that's a good answer. He was a faithful man as far as a man after God's own heart. And, and he was the one who beat Goliath. Some of you may say, well, he, he wrote some of the Psalms. He, 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 he was the one who wrote many of the, of the wonderful Psalms. And, and that's all true, too. But when you think of David, what do you think of? The man who committed adultery and murder. He's the, he's the man that had to write Psalm 51 confessing his own sin. Well, who followed David? Solomon. Solomon was next in line. In first King, look over to 1 Kings chapter 10. I mean, when you read what we've read in Deuteronomy 17 and, and you come to 1 Kings in chapter 10, look at verse 26. Here's their king. Now Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen, and he had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities with the kings in Jerusalem. Look down to verse 28. And also Solomon imported horses from Egypt. Egypt. Verse 29. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and horses for five, 150 did he not know about Deuteronomy 17? I mean, if you just read this on the surface, you would think, man, he's quite the warrior. He's quite the king. He's, he's building up an army. But he violates the very Word of God. Deuteronomy, do not multiply horses, especially from Egypt. And he does. Then look at chapter 11. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughters of Pharaoh. Verse 3. He had 700 wives, princes, 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. Well, who saw that coming? I wish Solomon would have. Don't multiply wives for yourselves. He had 700 wives. I can't even imagine. No king fulfilled what God has said. They all failed. That is, no king so fulfilled these things until Jesus came on the scene. Look over to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. 
verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up with the men from this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Speaking of himself. He's the king. He's the king over his kingdom. And he rules and reigns. It's not a kingdom that's made of real estate. It's the kingdom of my heart. He is the king. Look over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is blessed, the only sovereign the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. To Him be honor and eternal dominion forever and ever. He is the only sovereign, the King of kings. Here's my question. Is He your King? Are you a part of His kingdom that only comes by faith? Faith in His work on the cross. And if, listen, if you claim that that He is your King, do you live under His authority? Do you live under His authority. I was speaking to someone this week and we were talking about that reality and he shared with me that Mr. Spurgeon, believe it or not, came under criticism. And one of the criticisms that he came under was he didn't preach the Gospel enough. Didn't preach the Gospel enough. To which Mr. Spurgeon replied, Seems to me, you want Christ as your priest, but not as your king. You want to know everything that Christ did for you, but you don't want to hear about what Christ demands from you. And I fear... That's our Christian culture today. I love my Savior. Jesus is a wonderful Savior. 
but I don't want him as my king. I don't want him telling me what to do. I want to live the way I want to live. Oh, I want to go to heaven, and I want to be able to talk about Jesus, but I'm not going to bow my knee to him. He's not going to be my sovereign. And could it be that even among us, there may be some who have that attitude with regard to certain areas of my life. There's a certain area in my life in which I will not let Him reign over. I, I don't want Him to rule over. I want to do my own thing. And my friends, if He's not your Master and Lord, He's not your Savior. No matter what you claim. Well, He's a perfect King. He's a king that cares for his subject like no other king. But he's a king of authority. And we must recognize that and live in that reality in every part of my life. What I am as a citizen, what I am as a churchman, what I am as a father, what I am as a husband, what I am as a grandfather, what I am as an employer or employee, He is the one who rules over my life. Is He your King? And are we living under His authority? Let's pray. Father, we give You thanks for the direction we receive from Your Word. And pray, Father, that You would help us to take the principles of that Word and rightly apply it to our lives. There is a kingdom that has a perfect king. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's an unseen kingdom right now. But it is one in which Christ rules and reigns. And we thank You that You have brought us into that kingdom through Your work on the cross. But there are some who may be here this morning or maybe even listening by way of live stream who are not a part of that kingdom. Oh, Father, may they see that whatever, part of, whatever kingdom they're a part of, it's not going to last. It's only temporal. And may they desire to be a part of a kingdom that is eternal that has a wonderful King. And even this day, bow their knee to King Jesus. And Father, perhaps there are some who gather here who would acknowledge that Christ is the King and they're a part of that kingdom, but there, there's areas in which His authority, they, they don't want it to affect their lives. And Father, may they see that sin and, and may You, Father, turn them away from it. May they forsake it. So, Father, we pray that You would take Your Word now and do us good and bring glory to Yourself as we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In closing, let us take the Trinity hymn book and turn to number 216. 216. Crown Him with many crowns, the Lamb upon His throne. 216.
Let's stand together as we sing.